Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast is continuing to enjoy inclusion on lists of the best podcasts to listen to. This is uh, really uh, due to the guests that join me. They have expertise in a variety of uh, business areas, and they give us their time and their knowledge so that you can all do better things in your business. And that is why this podcast uh, continues to gain recognition as a great resource for small business owners, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals. We have such a guest with us today. Uh, John Warlow is joining me. He is an entrepreneur and author with over 20 years of research experience into the small and medium business market. He founded the Value Builder System to level the playing field for business owners as they approach their exit. John's best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. Magazine as one of the best business books of 2011 and has been translated into four languages. Thanks so much for joining me today, John. Thanks for having you, Diane. I am very excited to have you on the show. Uh, actually, back when your book was first written, you were on here and gave some really incredible information. So I, I am tremendously grateful that you are joining me again to share even more. Um, it's one of the uh, most listened to episodes of all time. So thank you in awesome. advance. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if you can explain to the listeners why you say the playing field needs to be leveled for small um, and medium-sized business owners. Oh, sure. So, I mean, when entrepreneurs go to exit their business, oftentimes they've been running the same business for 10, 20, 30 years, 
and they know all there is to know about exiting or all there is to know about running their business, but very little about the exit process. And on the other side of the negotiation table, if you think about it, it's usually a big company executive or private equity company partner. And they're generally experts at buying businesses. Like that's the, all they do all day long. Whereas we as entrepreneurs, we're, you know, managing people, talking to customers, dealing with, you know, the operations of the business. While we're doing all that, all they're doing is fine tuning the expertise in buying companies. And if, if that's their job, they, they, they are trained at buying low and they use all kinds of tricks in the book. Uh, everything from vendor take backs to, uh, you know, completely outlandish earnouts and all sorts of tricks to try to get you to give up your business for much less than it's worth. And so that's why, you know, that's why we're excited at Value Builder to, to try to fix that essentially. Wonderful. Thanks for that explanation. So what is the difference between growing value and growing revenue? Mm, yeah. Great question. So what we've discovered through, I guess now we've done 40,000 different users, different business owners that have gone through Value Builder. We've learned that revenue is a driver of company value, but it's, it's certainly not the only driver of company value. In fact, there are eight unique drivers of company value, which often ironically kind of compete with revenue. So what I mean by that is that if all you wanted to do was grow your top line of your business, um, you might personally do the selling for your company, right? If you're the founder of your business, you're probably the rainmaker, you're probably the best salesperson. And if you were really focused on top line revenue growth, then you'd probably hit the road and do all the selling for your company. The challenge with that is that it will undermine the value of your business because a buyer will look at your company and say it's worth nothing without the founder. The founder wants to retire, they will leave or sell, whatever. There's really nothing for me to buy. And so there, what makes your business big will also compete with what will make it valuable. Um, another good example of that would be cross-selling. You know, a lot of companies go about focused on you know cross-selling because it's eight or ten times easier to cross-sell an existing customer than it would be to go out and find a new customer. And while that helps you grow the revenue of your business, it, it can also undermine the value of your business because when a buyer buys a company, what they're trying to do is buy something they don't already have. They're trying to buy that one product or service that you've really made a name for yourself on, that, that you've really differentiated and to actually compete with you on that product would take a long time or a lot of money to get as good as you are at that one product. But when they see a, a hodgepodge of products intermingled with that one product, they say, I don't really want to buy, you know, uh, those other 50 products or services. What I really want is that one little jewel in the rough. And it's, if we've ever bought, you know, cable television, for example, you, you know that experience, right? You, you, you want HBO or you want ESPN or whatever you want. Yet the cable company makes you buy 168 other channels, right? And, and acquirers hate that experience, right? They want to buy the clean, pure play uh, company, which is doing one thing that's tough to replicate. And that's when you see acquirers pay significant multiples for businesses. That's fascinating. So, so a business owner really then needs to be looking at their whole business. Like they need to helicopter up and look at the whole thing and say, okay, what things need to be in place for this business to be valuable when I'm ready to exit? Is that 
what's going on? Absolutely. But it's probably well beyond when you're ready to exit. It makes sense okay. to, to look at your business through the lens of an acquirer way back, you know, decades before you actually want to sell it. And the reason for that is that it makes, you make different decisions. I'll give you an example. I, I did a podcast with a guy who ran an ice cream manufacturing company, right? So he, he developed a new recipe for, it was actually frozen yogurt, but he developed a really delicious frozen yogurt recipe, started making frozen yogurt. He always dreamed of having retail shops, like ice cream shops. And so he started out and built in the Pacific Northwest, dozens and dozens of these ice cream shops. Um, he also got his ice cream into Kroger's and some big retailers. Well, 20 years later, he decided to sell the company and he went out to the marketplace and says, I, I had, I think he was a 50 or $60 million company at that point. He said, I've got this great company. We've got this you know, 40, 50 different locations around the, the Pacific Northwest. We sell in the Kroger's. We're a great business. Crickets. Nobody wanted to buy the business. And he kind of got underneath it to try to find out why. And everybody said, I don't really want a bunch of retail stores, right? Like if the companies he was talking to were other brands and what they valued in his company was his relationship with Kroger and other big supermarkets. So what they were looking at him as is a way to get into these other major distribution channels. The only buyer he eventually got for the company was a buyer who shut down the 50 ice cream shops the moment they took ownership of the company. Wow. So he'd spent decades building this distribution channel that became ultimately worthless, not only worthless, but actually dragged down the value of his company, it became a bit of an, like an, an albatross around his neck yeah. just because he, he wasn't thinking like an acquirer. And so again, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in thinking about your business through the lens of how would an acquirer think about this decision we're about to make. If we're going to build a new website, how is that going to make our business look to an acquirer? If we're going to hire a new sales manager, what is that acquirer going to see as an asset in the, the CV or resume of that sales manager? Or what would be a deal breaker for them? Again, it can be decades away from wanting to sell, but it just helps you think about your business in a way, in a strategic way, if you will. Okay. So, so is this, Really, only something um, that a business owner who is is planning on selling their business needs is this an exercise only they need to go through, or do you think any business owner should go through this exercise? Look, I think it helps for any business owner to go through the exercise. We've done at Valuebuilder we survey our customers all the time, and, and we know that roughly six out of ten business owners plan to sell to a third party. About two out of 10 uh, plan to do some sort of management transition where they'll give ownership or, or sell ownership essentially to the next generation of managers, which is typical in a law firm or accounting firm. And then about one out of 10 plan to sell their business to their family member to like a son or a daughter typically. And so um, those are the, 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 the proportions of uh, likely exit scenarios. And under all three of those most common exit scenarios, you really want to be passing down a business that an acquirer would want to buy uh, that's not dependent on you uh, running it. Uh, yeah. Whether you want to sell to a third party, that's a prerequisite. But even if you want to give it to your kids, the last thing you want to do is give or sell a business that's deeply dependent on you to your kids. It's a recipe for a disaster both personally and, and financially. Yeah, that's huge. Wow. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break, and then I have some questions for you about the, these eight key drivers that you mentioned before. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. If you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are Built to Sell by our guest, John, and The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients by David A. Fields. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, explore the books that are of interest to you, and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're speaking with John Warlow about the eight key drivers of company value. Okay, so can you talk about some of them? I don't know if we'll be able to do all eight of them, but but can you, you know, touch on some more of these key drivers that that help a company increase their value? Yeah, ha- happy to do that for sure. So, right. uh, so so one is is the growth potential of your company. So. When a buyer looks at your business, uh, they're going to want to know, how do we scale this thing? And, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, that can be a bit of a head scratcher because for, for, you know, as entrepreneurs, we're really coming to the finish line of our business when we think about selling it. And maybe we're excited to have reached a million dollars in revenue or $10 million in revenue, whatever the, the kind of milestone is that you've, you've achieved or you've wanted to reach. But for the buyer, that's their starting line, right? So if you've reached 10 million, well, congratulations, but the buyer wants to reach 30. And so they want to know, how do you, how, how can we scale this business? And what I found, what we found is that the secret to doing that is figuring out your TVR. It stands for teachable, valuable, repeatable. In other words, basically isolating the products and services that you sell today, which meet the criteria teachable, valuable, repeatable. Teachable stands for can you teach employees to deliver it or is it something dependent on you? Valuable is in the eyes of the acquirer, meaning uh, meaning, excuse me, valuable in the eyes of the customer, meaning is it something you're differentiated on offering or is it just a commodity? Uh, and repeatable is, is it something that customers need to repeat on a regular basis? And when you, when you identify your TVR products and services, it's really about focusing on those because those are the ones that scale as opposed to the one-off services that are deeply dependent on you. Um, you know, those are the ones that are, that, that, that can undermine the value of your company. So growth potential is, a, is, a, is one of the, you know, one of the eight for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I, I love that, that TVR. That, that's fabulous. It's a great way for people to look at their business. Okay. What's the next one? Well, recurring revenue is a big deal for any acquirer. So, you know, again, they want to know how the, you know, the one common denominator across all eight drivers is how well is your business going to perform when you're not there? Um, and recurring revenue as one of the other drivers is a, is a big deal for acquirers because they want to know once you, and whether you're the, the rainmaker for your company, whether you're the chief salesperson or not, they realize that you're probably fairly influential in the top line revenue of your company. And so what they're looking for is recurring revenue models where, you know, there is some form of revenue coming in without you, the founder or your salespeople having to stimulate it. Um, when I talk a lot about this concept to business owners, 
oftentimes their head, their mind goes to SaaS companies, software as a service companies, and they think about their subscription to uh, MailChimp or Salesforce.com or Infusionsoft, and they, and they say, oh, I get recurring revenue, but that's really for software companies. And what I usually do is tell them the story of H. Bloom, because H. Bloom is in a business that is very far from Silicon Valley. They're in the business of selling flowers. And if you know anything about selling flowers, it is a tough business. It's, uh, you know, like the moment the farmer cuts the flower off the stem, uh, it starts to die, right? And so <laughs> typical, typical flower store uh, in America throws out literally garbage is more than half of its inventory every single month. Why? Because it's essentially dead. It's dead or dying in the fridge and they can't sell it. So they're, it's got, you know, typical flower stores got really bad, you know, spoilage. Uh, they've also got bad economics because they have to buy, you know, expensive foot traffic space. So they rent a space on a high street or in a bank, bank concourse level. Um, so it's expensive to stimulate demand. And then it's seasonal because if you think about when you buy flowers, it's usually Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, right? Something like right. a third of all flowers are bought on those two days. And so these guys came along as company H. Bloom and they said, okay, I get, you know, selling flowers as a business, but I want to do it in a different way. I want to sell flowers on a recurring basis. And so they went to hotels and spas who like to, you've been to these things, Diane, where you have these like uh, kind of fresh cut flowers on the reception table. It gives a sort of a prestigious image for that spa. Or that yep. hotel. So they decided to sell to the spas and the hotels, the subscription to flowers. And the deal was, look, every two weeks we're going to come, we're going to get rid of the old flowers because that's a hassle for people who buy flowers from flower stores. I'm going to come and bring new flowers to your location every two weeks. I'll send you a commercial grade invoice uh, and you can get back to the business of running your hotel and not worrying about whether the flowers are wilting or not. Wow. That's, that's an example of a, of a, of a business that is in a very traditional space. I mean, retail flower shop can't get any yeah. more analog than that that's been transformed by subscriptions. Typical flower store in America, by the way, will, uh, at the average transaction is $29. The typical H. Bloom subscriber during their life of their subscription with H. Bloom will spend more than $4,500. And so it totally transforms your business to have recurring revenue. Not only does it make it more predictable, typical flower stores throwing out more than half of its inventory. At H. Bloom, by the way, they throw out less than 2% because they know how many subscribers they have, right? Right. They only buy flowers for the subscribers they have. So it just totally transforms the predictability of your business and ultimately its value in the eyes of an acquirer. But for H. Bloom, they're not worried about that right now. They love the predictability of the business model, um, yeah. the lifetime value, the profitability, et cetera. So I tell that story just to kind of tell your listeners that, you know, even if they're not in software, even if they're in distribution or manufacturing or retail, there's a way to create some subscription revenue, some recurring revenue, and it can really transform your business. Well, and one of the things that I love about that is that that is looking at your business in, in a way to, to make it predictable, as you said, and sustainable, and could have nothing to do with eventually selling it. It just makes it better. It's more cost efficient. It's more profitable. It, 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 you know, and, and so selling's down the road, but, you know, using this process and looking at your business this way, whether you choose to sell it or not, 
is sort of secondary. It sounds like. Absolutely. You know, I used to, I used wow. to run, I used to run a market research business. This goes back 15, 20 years ago. And I used to hate the first day of the month because the first day of the month meant that my profit and loss statement, the revenue line of my profit and loss statement went to zero, right? Because we would basically go out and sell to customers market research. Uh, we, you know, if you want to do six focus groups, you could hire us to do that. If you want to do a big quantitative research survey, a big poll, for example, we would do that stuff. And uh, we did it on a classic consulting research project basis where we would pitch a job, we'd, we'd win a job, we'd do the job, and then we'd send the invoice. Well, at the beginning of the month, we started every single month from zero. And we'd have to kind of scramble and manufacture revenue each month. Some months we did a great job, other months we did a terrible job. And it was always really stressful. And any project-based company a company where you're selling hours or time or, or, or again, projects, I think can empathize with that sense of, of dread when the beginning of the month comes because you've got to do it all over again, get back on the hamster wheel and do it all over again. And that's the true uh, you know, benefit of recurring revenue. It just, I, I, obviously, it makes your business more valuable, but it's the predictable nature of the revenue. We transformed that company into a subscription business where we did research on subscription. And I just can't tell you how much more enjoyable that was to run compared to a project-based company. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I can imagine. Wow. That's crazy. I, I love this whole concept. And of course, I'm listening to it and thinking about my own business. So uh, <laughs> I imagine the listeners are doing the same thing. So hit me up with another uh, driver, please. Yeah, well, I mean, we talk about monopoly control a lot. So that's one of the other eight drivers. And so monopoly control, um, it comes from the, uh, you know, Warren Buffett. Have you ever read his letter to shareholders? Uh, no. Okay. So Warren Buffett does a letter to shareholders once a year. It's kind of interesting reading for capitalists. And anyways, he usually talks about what his investment criteria is or criteria are, multiple criteria are for businesses that they buy. And he's got a bunch of different criteria. One of them is a company with a deep and wide competitive moat. And what he means by that is that they have, you know, it's a, obviously a military analogy where you've got a protective moat around your company, meaning you've got some point of differentiation, some sort of point of differentiation, which gives you pricing authority. Pricing authority means that you can, to some extent, set your price. You're not competing, you know, selling your product by the inch, by the pound, by the yard, where it's a commodity and it's really just a race to the bottom. You, you've got some point of differentiation. You think, you think of Nike. Nike branded shirts, you know, the same shirt, virtually the same shirt can be purchased for 50% less. The only difference is they don't have the Nike logo on it. And so that's a, that's a point of differentiation. In, in this case, their brand, it gives them a bit of pricing authority. When you've got pricing authority, it allows you to invest more in your brand and your marketing and your differentiation. And it, and it kind of thickens and widens your competitive moat. And so acquirers also look for beyond just Warren Buffett, other acquirers, almost all, in fact, acquirers look for companies with a deep and wide competitive moat. Because one of the things that you've got to kind of put yourself in the shoes, and we, we try to do that as much as we can here in the, in the, in the shoes of the buyer, because the buyer, when they look to buy a company, 
um, they're making a build versus buy decision, right? So they're not going to tell you this, but they're going to look at your company. They're going to go back to their boardroom and they're going to say, do we really need to buy this company or can we just compete with them? I mean, because we just like kind of lower our prices by 10% and pick up all their business. Because if you're in the commodity business, if you're just selling your business based on, if you're selling customers based on responding to RFPs, or you're just basically selling on bids, they're going to say, I don't, we don't need to buy this business. We can simply bid for their jobs and drop our price by 10 points. And we'll pick up all of their business and never write a check to the owner for the company. If, on the other hand, you've got something different that would take them a long time or a lot of money to replicate, you know, that's when they say, okay, that's worth buying. You know, like when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, as an example, like Microsoft could have built their own social network. Like they've got a lot of, uh, you know, deep you know, software engineers at Microsoft. They could have built their own social network, but they sure. made the decision to buy LinkedIn for 26 or $24 billion because to replicate LinkedIn, there's a network effect, right? The more people are part of, of LinkedIn, the more people want to be part of LinkedIn. And so to replicate that, it would be just a colossal undertaking to the tune of, in their calculation, more than $24, $6 billion that they spent on the company. So for very small companies, the local flower shop, the local you know, uh, retailer, the local manufacturing company, buyers are making the same decision. It's on a much smaller scale, but they, that they're saying, is this guy got anything that we really need to buy or do I just want to compete with him or her? And, and if the answer is I'll just compete with them, then they're not going to buy your company. Do you think that, um, or do you find that identifying their real differentiator is something that small business owners are, struggle with? Yeah, because they, they all, yeah. So, so what we use, I mean, we, we have a whole methodology. We take business owners through who are interested in figuring out what their monopoly control is. But when they come to us at the beginning, typically business owners say, well, what makes us unique is our customer service. Yeah. We really know our customers and we deliver great customer service. And so that's really what makes us unique. The problem with customer service is it's not a marketing point of differentiation because for, by definition to experience customer service, you have to experience it. To believe it's different, you have to experience. You have to be a customer. So while customer experience can keep customers and it's important for retaining customers and getting them to repurchase something, it's not a marketing point of differentiation. It's not something that you can go out and, and, and claim until people claim with any authenticity until people actually experience it for a marketing strategy to have teeth it's got to be important to customers number one and make you different right so we can all yeah. list off a bunch of criteria that customers look for in whatever product or service you sell right it's got to be reliable fast cheap you know whatever the, the the list of things that customers care about everybody can list that most entrepreneurs can list off the list of, of five or six things that customers care most about but then you have to ask yourself does that make us unique or is that essentially something that all of our competitors also say and so the real job for figuring out your monopoly control is figuring out not only number one, what, what, what customers really want in when they make a decision to buy our product or service, that's the number one job you got to do. Great. You'll probably come up with a list of five or 10, but then the next job is okay. On which of these are we truly different? Because that's the one where you've got the, 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 the underpinnings or the raw material of a marketing proposition. 
Otherwise, you're just a table stake. You're competing on the same. You know, like every plumber in Toronto, which is where I'm located, you know, competes on reliability. Um, well, that's great yeah. if you're reliable. Right. It's important to customers that you're reliable, but it doesn't make you different. So it doesn't, it's not right. a marketing proposition. So it's, it's your marketing proposition has got to meet those two criteria. It's got to make you different, but it's also got to be something customers care about. Yeah, I, that, that is uh, huge. And, and it was funny. I was laughing when you said they all say our customer service sets us apart. I mean, everybody says that because everybody right. thinks that. So yeah. It's like our, you know, our HVAC, our customers make the difference. We've been in business since 1943 or, you know, uh, our customers are our success or what, like you've seen these sort of positioning statements. They look like 1970s, like cereal boxes. They're, they're, they're they're not marketing propositions. They're, they're things that should be retired. They're, they're, they, they may be important to you as like business owners are are deeply proud of the customer experience they offer. And I, I get it. I get it. But it's, but, but to build a company that someone would want to buy, you can't say we're different because we offer great customer service. It's just, it's just, un, because again, the part of why you, own, why you offer great customer service is probably because you as the founder ensure that customer service is amazing. It's you who, who right. deeply love your customers, right? It's you who follow up with the frontline people and say, did you solve the problem for Bob or Susie? Um, you know, it's you who are passionate about your name being on the door and then offering great service. Take you out of the equation and there's nothing there anymore, right? And so that's why acquires, when they look at your business and they say, oh, the guy's been differentiated on customer service, it just makes people yawn and think, okay, next. Right, right. Because yeah. you're the, it's, it's your passion that has enabled that great customer service, but you take you out of the equation, that's, that's not a point of differentiation. I and think this is one of, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think this is one of the biggest things that I am hearing you say is that business owners have to make sure that, that their business can run without them. Otherwise, it doesn't have value to someone who wants to acquire it. Correct. Correct. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, that really is the, you know, if you were to distill the whole, our whole conversation down to a single idea, it's easy, easier said than done. Clearly I've, I've run a few businesses. I know how hard that is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've got this sort of methodology that we take people through that, it, that makes it kind of, I don't want to say easy, but there's a recipe, right? You start off and you figure out your TVR. That's the first thing you do in our methodology because that's what gives you the platform to get yourself personally extricated from the delivery of your product because you're figuring out what's teachable. Once you've done that, you've got to figure out your recurring revenue model. That gives you the recurring revenue. Once you've got that, you get into monopoly control. Like it, it is a sequential set of steps you can take. Um, it's not like you have to do all of this at once, but, right. but there you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process you've got to go through to build a, a more valuable company. Okay. So speaking of which, um, so thank you. And, and I knew we weren't going to get through the eight, but I was sort of intentional about that because I want people to reach out to, to you. So will you tell people how they can get in touch with you and, you know, about the value builder system, please? 
Yeah, the very best thing is to get your value builder score. That's going to give you a score on the eight key drivers of company value. So you're going to go through a questionnaire. It takes about 15 minutes and it's going to give you a score on the things we talked about today, a score on monopoly control, a score on recurring revenue, a score on growth potential. Um, and that's going to that's gonna be your first step. It's free. You can just go to valuebuilder.com slash score. Okay. That, that's fabulous. Thank you. And thank you so much for the information. This is a, such an interesting topic and not one you know, we have on very often, but I think it's so important, whether you're thinking about selling your business or not, that's sort of a secondary thing. Going through this exercise can really elevate your business and change the whole you know, success um, arc that you are on. So Pay attention, go over to valuebuilder.com slash score and, um, and start that process and then reach out to these guys. Um, so, John, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Thanks, Diane. Also it was like great to, to thank meet the, you. Awesome. I'd like to thank the listeners uh, and our sponsor. Remember to visit um, audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth if you would like to get a free trial of audible.com as well as a free audiobook when you sign up for that trial. As always, remember to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.